0: Hello and welcome to The Comedian's Outlook. I'm Luke Antony and this is a podcast where I speak to fellow comedians about their world of comedy. This week I'm speaking to fellow writer and comedian Dan Farmer. He is a great friend of mine and so many people in the Cambridge scene. He is co-curator of the Cambridge Fringe Festival with Ali Warwood, and just an awesome guy to chat to, to be honest. He knows so much about comedy, the industry, the engineering of it, and this episode is such a good one for anyone who wants to learn more about the depths of comedy and how to do it. Let's get straight into it, shall we? Welcome to the show, Dan Farmer. Because when I was growing up, I used to speak before I did. You know, I'd say that, oh, I can't wait to do this thing. I can't wait to do this. This is a great idea. I'm going to tell everyone about the idea before I've done the idea. Yes. You know? Yeah. And it's like you're just setting yourself up for failure a bit because then everyone has that expectation and then six months of time people ask you how it's going. You're like, oh, no, it's a, a rubbish idea.
1: I've and had you. numerous instances where I have said that I'm going to do something, been very taken with the idea, yeah, and then a while later, it hasn't come to fruition, and it's there's it a lot of things that, like looking back, I either wasn't qualified to do, and I'd I'd overshot. So punching above your weight. Yeah, I was punching above yeah. my way, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because you need to sort of you need to work at the outside of your capabilities in order to grow mm. in terms of skill. But there were things such as. Um, I, years ago, I tried writing a novel. Yeah. And I tried writing several sequentially. And I what I tend to find was I would write the first draft really fluidly. And it would all come together. Um, and within about three months, it would be done and that would be the first draft. Of course, it's the first draft. of so shit. Yeah. But just, yeah. <laughs> that's the point of a first draft. It's just to have some clay in which to mould. Yeah. But then... I would get over ambitious with what I wanted to mould it into, and demand of myself that come the end of the second draft that it would be next to flawless. But I lacked the understanding of narrative structure, um, like in terms of like three acts or five acts, yeah, yeah, yeah. how those acts are meant to grow, what what the what a beat actually is in terms of conflict, the purpose of dialogue, and. I got too caught up in the idea of theme rather than the actual interactions between the characters and how that drives the story because it's the characters that drive the story, not the theme. But I got it the other way around. So I would get extremely frustrated and then fuck it off and then go and do something else. Out of frustration, again, do really well initially, but when it came to getting it good, I was thinking about all the stuff. I've, I've said I was going to do this. I've said it's going to be this good and people ask me questions. And then when it's not, Again, I fuck it off. So it constantly seemed to be that these big projects I was taking on. So there was three novels that I can think of that come to mind, Um, the ideas of which I all like still, but I can't go back to them because I've ruined it for myself. There was a comic book series I wrote, a six-issue comic book series, which I've still got the scripts and I still want to do something with. Yeah. But again, looking back, I can see that it's flawed narratively. But again, that was really driven by the characters and the things. It was about a guy who every time he eats bacon has cryptic uh, visions of the future. But they always seem to involve someone vomiting on him or him shitting his (laughs) pants. But then he gets involved with um, various criminal gangs who are extorting him. And he travels into the future because he accidentally eats a sausage. And there's a terrorist uh-huh. and there's a factory that's extorting other people. It was, it's got, got a lot of things that I really think is a cool idea. But again, it's flawed and kind of – that was meant to be a comic book series. We got a guy to do the drawing. Then his mum fucking died, selfish bitch. And then that <laughs> oh. ruined it for us. And then it was a case of trying to find someone else. But of course, comic book analysis, if they draw a page for a comic book, that's a day, two days work for a page just so page. and then you've got to think you've got to pay them for that day that's a day's work they can't be doing something else whilst they're doing that or they're doing it in and around things but then that stretches it out over months and i haven't got the money to be paying for someone's livelihood so again like i think that's why comedy's so good in that yeah. you can have an idea and all it requires is a microphone and some people to listen to it that's, yeah, it's true, yeah. You can
0: l- literally speak about what's in your mind and what you're feeling. Yeah. And it's a live reaction to what you're
1: t- you're thinking or feeling. You get that immediate feedback, yeah. and if it's good, sometimes you can just go, oh, that was it. That's all I needed it to be. I just needed it to say it the once, and it it's done, and I can move on. I'm great. Um, but other times you go, right, right, that was exactly the response I want. Um, I'll keep doing this ad infinitum, or that wasn't quite the response I want, but at least I now got an idea of where it doesn't work. Yeah. Where when you're looking at a 100,000-word manuscript and you're like, well, I think this works, and then you've got to give it to someone else and say, tell me which of these 300 pages work and which don't. I mean, you're asking a lot of someone else, who, again, isn't necessarily knowledgeable on the subject. They're just going by gut instinct, and taste is subjective. But with comedy, you're looking for one, one single response, and if you get that response you know it works. If you don't, you've got a, a reasonable understanding that it doesn't because, of course, sometimes, again, taste is subjective and people just aren't going to laugh at that or the room's wrong or something. But you generally, you know, if someone's not laughing or smiling, it's flawed. Yeah. And I, I like that immediate feedback that, that comedy yeah, offers yeah.
0: you. So do you think that the comic book would be good in, like, uh, like a sitcom sort of format?
1: Or Yeah. Well, the worst thing about it is, is that it was written in that format and then we had to try to um, rejig some of the things it was written in full script but mm. then we had to try and rejig it so it would work on a page um, which again that. means it is, it's flawed in the sense of turning pages it could work as a novel because it was written to be visual okay. so it's you can imagine there's not a lot of yeah. internal stuff going on so you can add to it but it's quite a fast paced thing yeah but again if you're going to be doing it as as a one long continuum the six chapters in which it's written in need to flow into a five act structure which isn't too hard. But again, this was written four years ago. Yeah. And I've learned a lot more since then. So sort of going back into it, it's it would be a lot of cutting and pasting. And I kind of want to do other stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know? So it's almost like that outlet that's already been sort of exhausted in that sense. So in terms of, you know, when you've got this inspiration to do something, if you've got that and you go on stage and you talk about it, the first time you do it and it gets a good reaction, it's the best feeling in the world. In a way, um,
1: I... I've kind of that feeling that immediate sort of like yes this is amazing I don't get anymore okay um but I don't get that with anything okay so <laughs> you've become yeah, a cynic of life <laughs> uh, it, it's it's just like you know uh, it's fleeting um yeah. and there is again with comedy there's so many things that can affect it on the night like you could come off the back of someone who's done an amazing job and warm the crowd up for you yeah and you're just riding that energy yeah um and it's a, it's a group effort in that sense. It's not just you and what you're doing then. It's, it's the group effort of everything. But also sometimes it's because you've interacted with people in a certain way and you've bought favour.
0: Yeah.
1: Which again is, is something that you've done, but it's not necessarily the strength of the material. So there's so many other factors that kind of play into it. But also the stuff that works is never the stuff I'm focusing on. <laughs> it's the stuff that doesn't work. The stuff that works is great, brilliant, that works, but how do I get this bit to work? So I kind of never really allow myself to enjoy it. To enjoy sense. it, because yeah. I'm focusing on the stuff that doesn't. Um, and again, I, I probably piss quite a few people off, because when, when I finish, I'm always going like, right, so what about this bit? Clearly focusing on the bit that was slightly contentious or something. It's like, how can I make that work? And yeah. Um, but so if you, you don't focus on those areas, there's no point in focusing on the stuff you're, you're good at if you want to grow. Like, you can develop the stuff you're good at and and learn from it, but you need to be focusing on the stuff you're bad at and applying what you've learned when you got good at the other yeah. stuff.
0: So you, you've obviously been like writing for a lot longer than you've done comedy. When, when, did, you, when did you transition into stand-up?
1: That would be about three years ago. Uh, the, the, but the only reason for the writing was because there wasn't an avenue to do stand-up. I like the, the art form of stand-up has always interested me ever since I was probably about eight, nine years old. No, but be a little bit older than that. I would have been... The first year of secondary school was the first time I saw a lot of stand-up in like a short space of time. My dad had moved to Stroud from Gloucester. I, didn't, I haven't lived in March all my life. I used to live over in Gloucester. He moved to Stroud. I had to spend weekends with him. And the um, person he was living with had a bunch of stand-up DVDs. It was things like Roy Chubby Brown, Lee Evans, um, Jethro... So it was that club circuit, bawdy comedy. But I'd never seen anything like that before. Um, and my my dad is horribly racist. Mm-hmm. So all of those kind of jokes. Like, I grew up with that. And it was one of those things where I was young. I didn't really... I, I, I knew that it was wrong, but also I'd kind of... I did... The jokes were funny. And not all of the stuff they do is racist. Like, there's some there's a really good parrot joke by um, Roy Chubby Brown or it's about a budgie really long but it's, it's really good really well delivered um, Lee Evans is a lot of like my wife my wife kind of stuff and running yeah, around yeah. and clowning Very physical but again when you're 11 years old seeing a grown man running around and acting like a child is hilarious yeah absolutely so I was captured with that and then around well, it must have been about what probably about 10 years ago when Mock the Week started getting big yeah Okay. And then you had that big wave of stand-up coming through And a lot of panel shows Where it was a lot of comedians basically doing their routines um, That kind of reignited that again And I really wanted to go out and do some. I actually went down to London to do some stand-up Got, got a train ticket Got a, ho- uh, what was it, a hotel It was a hostel for the night Went to the club um, Only to discover that it was closed because of the London riots Oh gosh <laughs> and the, the, there was no one rioting. I'm looking around and going, this is lovely. It's really nice and peaceful. I wasn't, wasn't even aware there were riots going on. But apparently <laughs> there were riots, um, which meant that the club owner didn't want to go out in case he got stabbed. <laughs> uh, so I didn't get to do any comedy. So I came back and then... How old were you then when that happened? Um, I would have been mid-twenties. Right. Probably about 24. Yeah. 25. So I had to wait a few more years for the scene in Cambridge to start with, like, First Laughs had to start. Um, Actually, I didn't know about First Laughs before I, I found out about an open mic in Peterborough. I started doing it at an open mic in Peterborough and within a few months of me starting that, First Laughs had started up and someone told me about it, but I had to wait for these things to exist and be local to me before I could do anything.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: So in the meantime, I was doing all this other stuff and writing and focusing on it, but because it, it was a substitute for what I really wanted to do. Again, I think that was part of the reason I got so disenfranchised so quickly. With yes. Um I mean, yeah. I, I find that I think
0: I, I was writing from since a very young age. Like I, I the first gig I ever did, I was like really really young, and then I just sort of put it to bed myself. But I I think most a lot, a lot of comedians start out as writers and and then want to sort of try it out. It's very hard to get something that you've written to be acted out. By other people, or to be created by the people, or mm. the, you know the funding and the cost of all those things, and like the, just the logistics. Whereas if you just turn up in normal clothes and get onto a stage and with a microphone, you can sort of just pretty much do anything you want.
1: Yeah,
0: and the ball is in your court. And I guess you can't always transfer the the content you've created, but you can you can at least speak about the things you, you find funny.
1: At least mm. it has its limitations, but so does every art form. Um, And it's having those limitations that that provokes the creativity because immediately you're presented with a problem that you can solve. Yeah. Whereas if you sit down and go, I'm going to write some comedy, but you have no idea what you're going to write about. It's a lot harder than being inspired by something and then sitting down and writing about a thing and your feelings on it. Um, So... Yeah, although you can't go up and do, or it's very difficult to go up and do a, a multi-person sketch uh, or something that is extremely visual because it requires like props and movement and, and things. You, there, you can most of the time come up with a way of, of presenting the idea at least.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: <clears throat> but there are things like um, you remember Spaced, the the episode with the um, the mimed gunfight. Yes. Okay. Uh, that was a piece of stand-up that Simon Pegg tried to get to work for years. Oh, really? And it never really took off. But it was always an idea that he really liked and had in the back of his head. So when he had this episode of Spaced, it, was, it seemed to fit perfectly. So they tried it, and it worked a lot better. And it's now one of the most recognisable things of that, of that show. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't always work, but you have to try it. And I think it, uh, there's a lot that works. It's quite a, a flexible medium in that sense
0: yeah exactly i mean but with the writing that you've done do you think that you would just try your luck and maybe try and get it like commissioned and solicited or, or?
1: no not at this point not at this point um i mean there is a, another book i'm writing at the minute but again that's something i am genuinely interested in and uh, if i can finish it and again i'm not putting pressure on myself to do so um but if it gets finished and it's of a quality i like i'll probably just attempt to self-publish it and,
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, just yeah. put a bit of funding into it. Print some yeah.
1: copies, which again is something I could probably. Um, I think I'll probably just go to gigs and stuff, and if people are interested, I can just give them a link to to an ebook, and they can pay a couple <laughs> of quid towards it. You know, it's the least the, the least amount of work possible. <laughs> yeah, but I also don't want to be badgering people with with that. No. Cause it, it's quite a commitment of time. Yeah, so you yeah. Know how to read something like that, and if if people aren't genuinely interested in it, or they're just they're just feigning interest because you've said you've done something. Yeah, I see. You know, I see. So you, you, you
0: I mean, I've, I've obviously seen you perform quite a lot, but I've seen, I've seen you perform like three years into you doing stand up, you know, solid stand up. So I just, I just wonder when you first started, what, what was your material like, and what, what did you speak about?
1: My very first one was about a guy I saw returning condoms to Boots. Okay, and I saw it happen. Uh, I, was, I, I went to go to check the open mic out like the night before. And there was a guy performing who was doing his first time there as well. I'm not going to say who it is because he's still out and about. Yeah. Um, but I'm much better than Harrison Salter. <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> no, what it was, I saw Harris. I've told Harrison this as well, so he knows. Um. I've, I saw his very first gig um, and it was one of those things where I was watching and he was doing some stuff and I kind of thought, yeah, I can. I can do this. I, I'm. I can get up. I've got some ideas. I can do this, and I can probably do it okay. Um. So the following week, I did, and I. So, but the day after I saw Harrison, I saw this guy returning condoms from the <laughs> in, in, to boots. So I'm like, why would you need to return condoms? What has happened in this guy's life that means he no longer needs to wrap his cock when he's having sex? And I ended up writing 15 minutes, Oh wow. like just off the bat, on this thing and going off on all these different tangents, like little, scenarios of yeah, of why little scenarios write. of why and um. And for a first time, it was it was quite good, uh, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> um, we need some witnesses for this. I've got video of it. You got a video? I've, I've got of it. video of it, and like for a first time, and that's what you have to take into consideration. It's I'm very nervous. So I don't really know like how to present myself when I'm up there how to make eye contact and things like that which again sounds simple but when you're in the moment it becomes a lot more difficult to maintain that eye contact Um, but yeah it it went really well and it gave me the confidence to go up and I I didn't bomb until about my fifth time and I was doing new material every time sometimes we were a bit of a struggle some jokes didn't land but enough did to encourage me but around the fifth time I tried to do something about something I read about um, Andrew Wakefield who was like the The doctor who started the whole uh, measles, vaccines cause autism thing. And the problem was I didn't make it funny enough or silly enough. I was just angry. I see. I see. Which for some comics, that that seems fine because when they're angry, it comes across as funny. But apparently I just (laughs) came across as correct. I <laughs> like a rallied like, um, a rally, like it it thing. turned into a TED talk yeah, <laughs> yeah. and the people instead of laughing were just nodding and going yeah he's right <laughs> I was like this is not the response I want but it's nice to be validated <laughs> um so that was the first time I kind of really sort of like came on stage going I fucked up here I've I've missed a trick um and then the next time I kind of really felt like that was actually the first time I met Jason Stamp.
0: Okay, yeah. Lovely um, guy. It's been on the podcast.
1: Yeah, he ran a night in St. neots and it was the second one of them, I think. And I went up and I was doing something about my son, about finding out he was disabled and stuff. And there was, there was a, uh, it's a quite a sad story, finding out that his son's like got severe epilepsy and he's, he's never going to have the life of, of an average child. But, it was quite funny in that um, when we were in ICU, he diarrheed all over me and I had to travel back from Leicester to March wearing women's trousers. <laughs> so, but in order to get to that point, you've got to tell like part of the sad story. But um, again, instead of just starting off with some funny stuff to get you in and buy you favour, yeah, I went straight into the sad stuff. Which again is a comedy night (laughs) It's not an Edinburgh show It's not 45 minutes into your Edinburgh show Where you're crying about your dead fucking dad I'd (laughs) love it if my dad was dead Oh Uh, oh no he's a cunt Um, (laughs) The world would be a lot better off without him But uh, the (laughs) That's (laughs) libelous. Fucking Richard Farmer is a cunt There we go Um, It's yeah
0: like what the fuck was been I saying affected, prior to that? If, if you've been affected <laughs> by any of the issues discussed
1: today on this podcast, you you, you can get in contact with. He's uh, my fucking dad. one? <laughs> it would just be him. Um. Yeah. Exactly. And he, he doesn't own technology. Uh. He's a terrified of it.
0: So you you you, you basically you, you went into the um
1: the realization that your son had um yeah at, so at talking about like talking about that again like the people are immediately interested. But interest isn't what you're going for. It's not a lecture. They, they can you can never need quite to, get up to
0: speed with what you're doing. You, it
1: kind of, yeah. yeah, and when you're talking about something that a lot of people haven't got experience of or have got indirect experience of, um, you you can create a lot of tension, which isn't a bad thing because you need the tension to create the release. Yeah. But if you're not creating the release, people just feel sad for you. Um, and again, there's a strength to that because you can, you can use that and you can twist that and really comedy is about manipulating those expectations and those emotions leading someone in one direction only to then take them in another quickly and create laughter as a result yeah of of the immediate surprise but again i was at a point where i wasn't doing that and jason was really lovely and said some nice things and actually that same night was the first night i met chris norton walker oh wow and chris has been wonderful to me and in fact this this if it wasn't for Chris, I wouldn't be still doing comedy. I don't think he's an amazing
0: guy. I've had, had him on the podcast too, and he's just full of so much wisdom, and, and he he's is. so supportive. Yeah. And and anytime, anytime you're feeling like rubbish about what you've just done, he'll find a way of like almost sugarcoating it, but then telling you how you can make it better. He doesn't just say, "Oh, it's fine. You're going to be fine." It's more
1: that this is how you can make it yeah. fine. Um, well, what happened was I saw Chris, and he was brilliant. He absolutely destroyed what he was doing, uh, and it was one of those nights where he was just on all cylinders, just a, having a go at everyone, taking the piss out of the barmaid, taking the piss out of the audience, taking the piss out of the other acts. The night was fucked in the sense that the, it was like the room was split into three sections. In the first room, you had comedy. In the next section, you had football. And in the section after that, you had a pool tournament and you could hear everything that no was going gosh. on terrible venue for comedy but he made it work it was absolutely fantastic and I said to him look I'm organising a night in March I want to set up a a comedy night there because I thought well if there's not places for me to go to comedians I'll bring them to me Mm -hmm. Um, so he's like yeah sure headline it so I um, found a place uh, that would allow us to use the room on a Monday night completely to us to ourselves Uh, would allow me to tick it on the door would advertise it within to their clientele they had quite a um it, it's it's a basically a local pub so the clientele were always regular but they're quite supportive of those things that went on they love music nights a comedy night would be something different they thought they could sell it so it, it looked really good and the week before it was going to happen my wife left me oh gosh so i had now the fear of losing my house because i couldn't get all joseph's benefit money and everything sorted um it was it was an unreasonable fear because like he he's entitled to all the stuff he's entitled to regardless of who's living with him yeah. he was always going to be looked after and i'm his carer so by proxy it, everything would have been fine my daughter was living with me but of course now i'm thinking like i've got a two-year-old who i now need to look after by myself and how am i going to manage this and i've got this comment and i don't want to let people down and i just i panicked and i didn't know what to do and i contacted chris and i said look um, I don't know what to do oh and other acts had pulled out that was the other thing I see, yeah. so it was just down to like three of us I was like I've, this has happened I don't know what to do I'm not in a state to fix it you guys leave it with me and he contacted Ali Warwood yeah he contacted Jason uh, he contacted um, a girl called Charlotte who's no longer a comedian but she does help with the fringe she does some of the volunteering and a lot of the social media for the Cambridge fringe uh, Nessie Ward yeah put me in contact with um Joss Masson, who uh-huh. was the guy who set up First Laughs, so he basically put me in contact with every single person in Cambridge who ran a night and was of any significance, and said, "Here's your here's your lineup, put them on." So I put them on. He goes, "You MC?" I was like, "I, I can't MC." So I just did like, "This is the next act." Da 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 da. Brought them on and just as a, as a general host, but I just I couldn't be funny that night. But I met a lot of people, people who I'm still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in contact with now, of course. Ali, I now organise the fringe with Chris. I'll book any opportunity, as with Jason. <laughs> Nessie, I adore. She's lovely. Um, but that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't reached out to Chris.
0: Yeah, in, in and your he, had, of need. he had
1: given me all this stuff, and then given me these other avenues to explore later on when I was back in a in a fit state of mind to do so. Um. So yeah, I feel like I owe a lot to Chris.
0: I'm sure he wouldn't feel the same, though. I'm sure he'd just say, we're, we're
1: friends. That's, that's what friends that's, do. That's what that's the sort of person Chris is, though. Like yeah. I could have done that and gone to someone else mm. and not had the same result. I was just fortunate to have met Chris at the time I met him, uh, to have booked him, and for him to have stepped up and, and done that.
0: So I, didn't, so I didn't know that there was all this history to sort of like your friendship that you have with him. And every time you see him, you know, wherever he is, you always spend a couple of hours just talking.
1: You know, it's, it's one of those... Yeah, I've, I've got... Friendships that I've got a lot of time for him. Um, yeah. And there are, like, numerous instances. And, again, Chris is like this with a lot of people. But, like, you can go after it and go, right, time to go home. And then you can stand in a car park for two hours talking to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's happened more than one occasion. Um, and it's great. I, I just love the fact that it's there and I've got that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, again, like, and with Ali... Like the fringe wasn't my idea; the fringe was her idea, and the initial version of it fell through. Okay. But she wanted to carry on with it, and she came to me and said, "Look, would you be willing to help with this?" And yeah, we've done two years of what and I thought was a really, really good festival,
0: and it's really, really popular as well. It's—I mean, they, let's talk a little bit about that. So it first came about when when Ali wanted to set it up, and you like you say it fell through, but
1: yeah, I'm, I can't remember exactly why it fell through. um, just it didn't just didn't come together for whatever reason, so later on she she had the idea of doing it she asked me she asked Joe Tennant. I think we might have asked a couple of other people, but me and Joe agreed to settle in and help um and then we set about pulling a festival out of our ass, <laughs> um, getting the venues, agreeing to that, um setting a a price that was affordable to the comedians whilst not absolutely bankrupting us. Because like neither of us have got money that we can just pour into a festival and lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we had to break even for it. Um, but yeah, it, the first year was was a lot of work, a lot of stress. We got everything together because we had to we had to get imagery designed and everything, and work out the logistics of of how the stuff would run and how many volunteers we would need to get people in and out in a in a good time. So there was a lot of st- stuff that we had no idea how to do. Just from running a normal night, we had to kind of e- expand that into a full day's worth of comedy. Um, and we, we estimated it pretty well, but there did need to be some changes uh, on the fly. The second year, we had a lot to learn from from the previous year and we, we applied that. And I feel the second year went very, very smoothly. The issues that came up in the second year were not caused by us. They were caused by the venue. Okay, One venue in particular. Which couldn't be foreseen, um, so we had to we had to adapt on the fly. Which, like, there was one act who suffered a bit as a result of that. But like I said, it could be helped. I think I was there at the time. I, think. Yeah. I was one
0: of those I had to cover. Yes, on that, on that yeah. Showcase, it, it
1: wasn't it wasn't great. But again, things like that will happen when you're running a big event like that. Um, but yeah, like, unfortunately, the second year we lost Joe halfway through. Uh, yes, he had that's to right. go back to America. So like he was a huge part of that getting everything set up um, and get like all of the organisation because he's, he's a doctor he, he's a doctor of psychology he's very well organised he do, runs big projects in his work all the time so this was just a case of bringing that across and just showing us how to do it properly okay
0: he's been on the podcast as well but he's such a we miss him so much in Cambridge like the he's, he's
1: a wonderful person yeah yeah, yeah.
0: and he's always there like whenever anyone needs any cover, I, I think he covered he covered one of my nights at one point. He's covered things for Nessie. He's always he's always there to help <laughs> at any point.
1: Joe was he was one of the acts who did endurance, which was a night I ran a little while back, it was like a competitive comedy night. It was basically like an MC boot camp. So it was four rounds. First was a type five, second was improv, yeah. third was audience interaction, and the fourth was fielding heckles. Um which it was a night which all the acts that did it loved it. But it was on a Monday night at the Blue Moon. We just weren't getting the audience numbers in. And when I had to make some cuts for just to save a little bit of money for some stuff, it was a night that was easy to get rid of. Um, But one of the other reasons I got rid of it is so many people would pull out.
0: I see. Yeah. Because
1: it wasn't just an act turning up and doing his five minutes and then going home. It was a two hour commitment where you got to go up four times. Yeah. But it wasn't four times where you're just doing your material. It put you in some uncomfortable position. So some acts who hadn't done it before seemed really excited when they first heard about it and then would pull out. Or they would just go, oh, it's a Monday. Oh, I can't be fucking bothered. I'll just say I'm ill. Yeah. It's like, I know there's not that much illness going around.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> yeah.
1: when, when three acts are pulling out on the night because they've all got diarrhea, it's like, well, unless you've all been fucking each other. <laughs> Um. so I would have to call Joe I had to call Joe and I had to call Bim uh, Jamie Rob Knighton and Nessie Ward uh, and Charlie Stokes they were the people I always ended up calling
0: yeah yeah
1: um, and of course Bim's now back in Canada Joe's back in America so and that both happened fairly quickly with one or another which is another reason why I just went well if I've only got oh and Gabriel Bowker he was always being called yeah, upon as okay. well um, but when it was just Gabe, who I could call, it's like, well, I'm not going to get him to do the work of four people, so I'm going to fuck this night off.
0: <laughs> I need, to, I need to get Gabe on the the podcast. Oh, actually, there's so much we that. could we could talk about about him. Actually, we should just get a panel full of like comedians just to talk about Gabe's Gabe's like behavior.
1: <laughs> oh, Gabe he's a beautiful person. Though. He he is. He's absolutely wonderful. Um, I but I can't help but bully him. He's <laughs> got one of those faces, isn't it? It's it's yeah. not that. It's just sometimes <laughs> he he says or does something, and I'm like I, I can You must know better, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can't help but. But and I hope he understands that I'm I'm just doing it for fun. If there was any mal like if he felt any upset, he should just say if, outright, and I would stop.
0: If uh, you're a comedian, you should be able to understand that this is banter and. and...
1: Yeah, yeah, I hope. But sometimes he's come to me as like, "Are you are you genuinely pissed off at me?" It's like, "Of course I'm not." <laughs> don't, be, don't
0: be. upset. Uh, but that, that's another thing, though, because I, I often do that fake angry thing with people. Because like a lot of comedians, are the most insecure people in the world, they genuinely take it to heart and think that that they've really offended you or hurt you.
1: Yeah, um, and yeah. I just is, find it
0: amusing. I, I find it's a bit manipulative, actually. But I, quite, I kind of find it interesting to to see how far you can push someone before they start feeling too. Guilty because they they've got mental health issues like ninety percent of comedians.
1: Yeah, well ninety percent of people, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, now. Um, it's fashionable now. <laughs>
1: well it's better that you can you can talk about it than, than being forced yeah. to bottle it up. But yeah, like very often um very often comedians will if I'm running a night, I'll I'll get a message and say that I just can't perform tonight. Yeah. Something has happened and I'm not in the right state of mind um and as i said like with with me and that whole thing where chris had to bail me out yeah like any time that happens i am like right you have to look after yourself comedy is not going anywhere and if anything it is superfluous to the running of a country yeah we if everything happened tomorrow like it all died and everything went wrong the last thing anyone would be going is oh Where's the hilarious comedy night? The <laughs> yeah. only people who would be saying that are people who get paid to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, that's true. All the other infrastructure is far more important. Yeah. So get get your shit in order, get your health together, look after yourself. Because also comedy is meant to be fun. Yeah, and you if you can are up the there yeah. and you are not having fun, you're not doing yourself any favours, and the audience can tell. You
0: see through, can't it? Mm.
1: And actually, like the other week, I shouldn't have performed. Uh, The last relevant, I should not have performed. Um, But the reason for me not performing is fucking stupid. My phone broke. Okay. That was it. It broke, and all I needed to do was contact Tesco for a replacement, because it was in the 30-day replacement period. Oh, okay. But I... I think I'm addicted to the fucking thing at this point. I think I have a physiological addiction because I had heart palpitations. I was twitchy. I was sweating. (laughs) It was genuine cold turkey. And I went up and I addressed it and I tried to have a bit of fun with it. But um, I was very much in my own head and not focusing on the reactions of the others and trying to play off the crowd. Okay. And I was just thinking about the words I was saying. Uh, and getting them in out in the right order, which I still fucked up because I shouldn't have been up there. And again, that is not... that. Well, that clearly is someone who is mentally ill because a <laughs> phone breaking fucked their weekend up. Uh-huh. And that shouldn't happen. Uh-huh. But, yeah, at the same time, like, I should just be... A- Better fucking human being, shouldn't I? That should not be a thing. <laughs> well, you know,
0: every, every issue is an important issue now. It's, yeah. It's, um, but just just bring it back to the fringe slightly, and and people like you know Joe like helped out a lot. And um, one of the things I'd really like to say about like the Cambridge Fringe, which is different to other fringes like Edinburgh and, and other ones and everything, is that it's not there to benefit the organisers. You know, like a lot of a lot of fringes no. around the country. Are there to just look after the pocket of the people who organise it?
1: That was very important to me in in the setting up of it. When we first did it, I was very much of the mind that it should have been a non-profit organisation. Because as soon as you start trying to take a paycheck on it, you can compromise the integrity of the product. Not necessarily. But in an event that isn't a community event that is meant to be free entertainment for other people, as soon as you start adding your own expense into it um, and thinking about how much you can earn, you can start making cuts in order to make sure you earn more. Yeah. Um, and it, the fact that I, I want to avoid shareholders at all costs because I disagree with the concept of shareholders. Um, I believe the product should set itself and that the value that the product brings in should just be based on the sales of the product. Um, if it's not good enough to generate more money. Because also, once you get other people investing, then you're accountable to them. And it should be, you are accountable to the people who it's for. It's, yeah. It should be for the for the comedians and for the audience. Those are the people you should be accountable to, not someone who's giving you some money. Yeah, that's true. Um, so it was very, very important to me that it wasn't for my benefit, it was for the benefit of the audience. However, now, two years in, I completely changed my mind <laughs> um it is a lot of work and i would quite like to get paid for it next year but if i don't then it's fine
0: no but i think no, i know th- i think the issue there is is that it, no, i think it's absolutely fine to to come out maybe with a break even or make a small profit but I think it's the, the cost like going out to Edinburgh costs a minimum of like five grand just before you've even got up yeah. there and to tried to succeed for a month do you know what I mean it's that unfair cost to comedians and audience members yeah you know, when it costs
1: you thousand I know someone who put on a play um, and it was a ten day run and it cost them two thousand pounds just to hire the venue yeah um, let me just quickly do the maths it was uh, did we charge twenty five per per slot so 250 quid, that would cost if you did it at the Fringe. Yeah. You know, it's it's significantly cheaper. Like, we're not even a 10-day festival, I'm just saying if we were... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it would be around 10% of the cost of doing it in Edinburgh. Um, but I, I don't know enough about the economics of Edinburgh to, to fully comment on it but it's that's reason that's one of the reasons I don't know besides like having parental responsibilities during the time in which Edinburgh's on the the sheer cost of going. Yeah. I, to me doesn't seem worth it. I would much rather build something locally and really put that attention there than having this thing that really just exists to feed the industry.
0: That's true. He is there for that. I mean, I know people like Rich Wilson is a friend of mine, a comedian as well. It's very good. It's like, if you're getting paid to be in Edinburgh, it's amazing because you're getting you're getting all those the right reviews, you're getting all the right people in watching you, and mm. you're not there to lose. You're there to win because you've already been paid to do it, and and so that once you get to that point, I think it's great because it's just another platform to sell tickets yeah. for other shows. It but. would just
1: be better, I believe, and there's a lot more small festivals popping up. It would just be better for acts in general to have more ways of building up. That success prior to getting to Edinburgh, rather than banking it all on Edinburgh once a year and racking up fifteen grand's worth of debt year on year on year, with no guarantee it's going to pay off. It would just be nicer to have more places where you can build it, and that is happening. There are a lot more smaller festivals popping up that are a lot more affordable that allow people to grow their fan base and not necessarily even go to Edinburgh.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean the Chris, Chris Norton Walker, for example, he, he has his um, great show called Unexpected Item in the Gaggan Era, and he's taken it to quite a few fringes. Not Edinburgh fringe, but he's previewed it in many yeah. different places, and, and, he's, and it's really worked for him. Mm. Because,
1: and he, It's a good show, too. Yeah, it's very like good it would show. work in Edinburgh, but he doesn't need to take it there. And I don't think, in an ideal world, that anyone should need to go to Edinburgh. No. Um, it should just be something that would be nice to do. It shouldn't be an essential thing. In the same way that performing in London on the Open Mic Shirk, it should not be an essential way for a comedian to gain success. Um, your reputation should be able to precede you, and you should be able to build up something across the country. Like Stuart Lee's model I is the one I admire the most. I know he had the, the perfect opportunity when he had comedy vehicle on the TV, so he could do a year's worth of touring and then condense it into... Um, a TV series, and then do another year of touring and condense that into a TV series. But his idea that he only needs about two thousand people to turn up to his shows a year, and for each of them to give him like ten, fifteen quid. Yeah. Um, I might have lowballed those figures a bit, but again, that's all he needs to survive year on year, and he's getting more than that at the moment. Yeah. Okay. And if if you sort of break those. There's economics down to most people, like yeah, two thousand people giving you ten pound a year. That's twenty thousand pounds. That is above minimum wage. Yeah, for that's that for that's an a, annual salary. Then you've got absolutely. to take your tax out. You have to take your tax out of um, your your salary estimates anyway. If you're on fifteen grand a year, that's before tax.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're taxed twenty yeah. percent on that. Of course,
1: anyway. then you've got to factor in all the driving and everything. So it's not twenty grand, but you can get that back on your on your taxes to a percentage. There's there's ways and means to do it. But if you could, if you could get that audience, two thousand people across an area, And that sounds, that sounds pounder, quite attainable, doesn't it? It, do, it does sound yeah. attainable, yeah. If you, if you're quite humble in what you're looking for, if you're just looking for sustainability, then I think sustainability should be possible. Um, but it does also require a big commitment. It's not something I can do at the moment because I've got other commitments elsewhere. Like I've got children to raise, and I can't be spending. Five nights a week driving around the country doing that.
0: No. But someone like Paul Smith who who is probably the most well known one of the well known comedians or, or at least MCs, um, for Hot Water Comedy yeah. Club. Yeah. Um, an incredible like comedian. It's someone who just comes up with material on the flight all the time, constantly. The only reason why he got so known for like Hot Water Comedy Club was mainly because he just wanted to create something that was local and didn't mean that he had to lug around all around the country, driving around spending spend no. all that time. And he's, what he's done is managed to make something local to him. And he's become one of the highest paying comedians in the community. Uh, like I say, genuine comedians in, in the country, not like these super superstars, but you know, and, and I think
1: that's, well, that looks so like Jason's going that way. Yeah, exactly. Big yeah, deal it looks exactly. like Jason yeah. could, could find himself in that position. And, and, fair play to the guy because he's put, he's put in the work um, Ali when she was running Commoners yeah. probably could have found it if she carried on but that was burning her out and I can see why knowing the ins and outs of that um, but again she probably could have found herself in that position give it a few more years if she really really devoted herself to it uh, but again she's got family yeah, she's got yeah. commitments elsewhere so so this this um, conversation's
0: predominantly been, been about how great all the other people around are doing, and you—you and got some really amazing like material that you talk about. And you, one of well, my, thank you. your, your favorite, my favorite bits that you do, and you've developed it. One of the most best things about sort of being in the sort of the Cambridge circuit and stuff, and, and seeing people regularly is seeing how like people's sets develop over time. I think Nessie most recently expanded her Granny her Smith, Smith stuff. thing, yeah, and it's really good. It's got so much better over just in like three or four months. And if you don't see them every time, and then you see them three months later and they're like oh wow it's all changed Hmm. and you did your bit about the your it was i think it was an amazon review wasn't it about a book
1: oh that bit yeah yeah um yeah so the the amazon review which turns out to be a review of uh mein camp yeah um here's here's the secret to that i wrote the whole thing and it was never i actually say that on the it was a punchline way before. But fuck it. no. <laughs> the only people who are going to listen to this are probably people who've already heard it. So, <laughs> yeah, that is um, so true. Yeah. The yeah. So I wrote this. I had this idea um, that you would uh, talk just to talk favourably about something, then to reveal that it would be something quite horrible. What could that be? Well, it would be that. Um, and I also needed something that would be a joke about the Nazis in some way, just so I could say, speaking about the Nazis, any Morrissey fan's in. The only reason that exists is to go into the Morrissey material that follows it. (laughs) And the only reason that Morrissey material exists is so I can take the piss out of the passage that won him the Bad Sex and Literature Award.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, (laughs) Because
1: that, again, I absolutely love. I love how bad that piece of writing is and acting it out and, like... Talking about wanking someone off on a roller coaster and <laughs> rubbing the microphone on my face like it's meant to be a, a detachable breast and there's there's a lot of stuff I really enjoy so it only exists for that reason but yeah I because I like the other bit so much the Morrissey bit I've really put the work into that um that sort of uh, fake fake letter just to make sure that works really well so people yeah. are on board with me for the next bit because the next bit there's a section of it which is um, quite left-wing, although I don't see how calling someone who is vocally racist a racist left-wing, but apparently that's the time in which we live now. (laughs) Um, So, again, I feel I need to buy a little bit of favour with the audience just to make sure that they're on my side and they know that I'm not talking about people who are just somewhat conservative. I'm talking about this individual who has clearly stated that when someone calls you racist... They're really saying, yeah, you have a point,
0: Okay, which so is a validating. quote from him.
1: Like, wow. yeah, he, he doesn't see an issue with, with that. Like he votes for he's, he's pledging support to for Britain, who are like a far right anti-Islamic yeah, group. Yeah. And yeah, so it's to buy favour, to go into that, to talk about that, to then talk about this other silly thing. Um, and that's that thing's taken me probably about six months to get to this point and it's not finished it's not finished it's not finished no there are lines that don't work consistently enough and need a lot of revision
0: yeah so that's quite interesting because with your material yours is very much taking someone on a journey like the the, the whole substance of what you're doing like give us over a seven minute set is really important and some bits won't like with particularly like storytellers some bits won't work without other bits, you know. Yeah. So it does. It, there's an arc, and morality is obviously that arc, and that's that's yeah. the thing that you come back to and call back to. But how hard is that when 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 your sense in a room isn't quite um, sort of lively, and you know that your bits kind of low energy and it
1: needs to get there. It's you can really feel the pressure sometimes, but I always come back to blame myself for that. Um, if the room isn't on board with me at a certain point. I very often feel it's because I haven't given them reason to be. Okay. So lately I've been trying to do a lot more for the initial few minutes, do a lot more audience interaction, get the people on board, um, try and talk about the night, something that's happened that night, certain audience members, if they've been quite prominent throughout the show, talk to them, get them involved. And then... Once, once they, they feel like they're your friend, um, then they'll allow you to talk about this stuff. And yeah, yeah. Okay. once they feel that kinship with you, um, because what you're talking about is potentially divisive. Again, it shouldn't be really, I don't think morally, like we should be saying that racism is a <laughs> point that we should be discussing, but, um. But it's just—it's the con- context it's, it's just, around it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's the context around it, and the fact that some people yeah. are a bit sensitive. Being in Cambridge is is fine, but I've got to go and do a couple of slots in some more conservative-leaning areas, and I'm, I am—I'm interested to see quite how well that's going to go down. Because um, I know it's funny; it, people have laughed at all the bits in all the right yeah, places. Yeah. But when I go to someone who shares slightly different views, it'd be interesting to see quite how how well they take it.
0: Just, just, um, just uh, scout out like the fire exits and all that sort yeah. of stuff. but to you? be fair,
1: i've I've done i've I've done plenty of gigs in in quite um, conservative areas, and I've I've always actually done all right because some of the the darker, more offensive jokes they're mm. actually more likely to go for. And I've got some quite crude sexual stuff, which again they love. Um, it tends to be the liberal crowds who are a little bit more prudish, which <laughs> yeah. is kind of at odds with the point of being liberal (laughs) liberal means like sexually liberal like you should be more open to the idea of these things but apparently not (laughs) um but yeah like so going over but then i've I've spent a lot of time i do spend a lot of time writing and going over individual lines and trying to tighten them up um and there's like there's a book i got a little while back which was uh it was designed, it's writing for TV, like late night TV shows in America. One oh, okay. of those writers has written quite a hefty book on joke craft and everything for those settings. Of course, it's meant to be a lot of clean comedy, sort of very uncontroversial. It was written prior to Trump, so what is now, it does not necessarily apply. Um, but there's a lot of talk of craft, and I spend a lot of time like really thinking about that and, and working on it. Um, and the idea of like, a story, B story. Like I really try to do. Like <laughs> there's that. There's like <sighs> trying to think without without being too vague. Um, like every joke should have certain quali- qualities to it. Okay. Um, like every joke needs to be clear. Um, every joke, like you've got to have the point in which you're making has to be apparent. Um, you shouldn't have ambiguity in regards to the punchline. Unless the punchline is meant to be ambiguous. But again, that's clear. Like, it's clearly ambiguous. Um, Yeah, yeah. Like, so it has to be clear. It has to be concise. Like, so again, word economy is extremely important. And although some of my punchlines are quite wordy, I do make a concerted effort to try and put the funniest part at the end of the sentence, to have it in a way that, if it's wordy, it's because it's naturally wordy to me. I see. Um, it would come out of my mouth in that way if it was in a conventional setting Um, I've had, again, Chris has offered me some feedback on some jokes before and he's cut it right down and I've tried it and because it's coming out of my mouth it doesn't doesn't work work I've got to have those little bits those little words that add um, a sense of uh, flavour in the sense of like emotion Like it indicates the tone in which I'm saying it with or my underlying feeling about it through gritted teeth I see. It's just those, those little words of flavour that just make it funny, or add a bit more rhythm. I see. So yeah. So the natural speaking rhythm, rather than clipping it short and feeling like there should be more to come. Um. So yeah, there's a lot of time spent doing that. I I listened to the episode with Chris. Okay. And he said he made that martial arts analogy.
0: Yes. That, yeah, I remember that. that
1: yeah. It's a, stand-up comedy is a lot like martial arts. And that resonated with me because for the longest time, I've likened learning stand-up comedy to getting proficient at playing Street Fighter. <laughs> great um, game, great I, game. I'm a huge fighting game fanatic. I love it. Um, I don't tend to talk about it with, with other people because no one else gives a shit. But it's, might on this it's the same thing. Um, when I go up on stage... I need to have my execution down pat. In the same way that if you're going to go into a match, you need to know your combos and your your setups and everything. You can't just come up with this on the fly. You need to know what you're pressing before you press it. In the same way that you need to know what you're saying before you say it. So I do a lot of rehearsing at home. And the times I always do badly are the times I haven't rehearsed. I see. I see. And the times I haven't thought about a piece long enough. If I've just read something and written it and have it down on the paper... And then go out and say it without practising it out loud at home. It's just theory. And I don't get the sense of it coming out of my mouth. Can my tongue even get around these syllables in the right way that makes it clear? It's clear on paper, because you're reading it, you're just looking at it. But to hear it, does my tongue and my accent actually fit with these words and make it clear and concise? Does it get a bit jumbled? Could it get jumbled? Do I need to rejig things is that word actually just something that would be funny in an american's accent
0: i see yeah you know is
1: it is it because i've just listened to a lot of american stuff lately that i'm using that but actually out of my voice with my my accent my delivery it actually doesn't sound right doesn't make sense or does it work because i'm saying something that i shouldn't be saying with this voice but you don't know that until you're at home trying it and listening to it
0: so you seem to have a real, um, real sense of kind of. Um, I don't want to use the word censorship because pretty much everything you say is uncensored. But I mean, you you filter
1: everything that you do in the sense before you go on stage. You have a very clear idea when what it works. In, when it works, and I know every time I don't do that. Not every time. Sometimes I, I get lucky. Have you or, been busy at home or something? Yeah, been like distracting school you? holidays, for example. Like you know, I've got stuff going on, or it's just been a busy week and I haven't had time. Um, but on the, when I can really focus on it, yeah, I feel it goes well. Um, and I also feel that you should go up. The question shouldn't be, is this funny? The question should be, will they find this funny? Yeah. If it should be funny to you all the time. And I've made that mistake before, thinking this is a topic I should talk about. I should talk about um, my son's disability. Well, why should I? It's not funny. Like, the story about him shitting all over me and, like, dying and me travelling back, that's the joke. Yes. The, there's the idea of me wearing women's trousers on the train um, and then a girl sitting next to me at the penultimate stop to where I was getting off wearing the exact same trousers. That's that's just funny. Like, And the fact that she then thought she'd bought men's trousers. <laughs> um, like, that's, that's funny. The, the other stuff that precedes that, just the fact that I was there because it was a really sad time, like, I can't make that funny because it's not... Yeah. and it would be disingenuous of me to try. Um, and there's other times where I've read something and I thought, oh, I could probably make this funny. But then I've tried, but because it wasn't funny to me and I thought, oh, that's the sort of thing a comedian should be talking about.
0: I say, yeah, it's not genuine. It's not coming no. from your heart. It's not coming from... I mean, I know your comedy, as much as, you know, you're very good friends with um, Chris and Walken, it's a very good person for someone to tell stories or, and stuff to speak to, because obviously people who tell stories often need a little bit more honing and things like that and people like Chris Norton Walker and um I can there's a few others like Adele Cliff are helpful for that sort of
1: with well with Chris once the joke is done it's done yeah once he has the one liner and it works it works yeah. it works and that's that's the beauty of it that of course that comes with its own set of issues whereby you don't you can't create quite so much momentum yeah because you have to come up with a thousand one liners that work I can do that and f- and then you have to hone them down into the ones that work together and group them. And that was that's a lot of what his his show, the work that's going behind it. Writing jokes comes very very easily to Chris. He yeah, can yeah. write jokes. He writes hundreds of jokes within a month. Um, it's then taking them and collecting them together in the order that works. And there's there's a lot of editing and then tweaking them for the those that don't quite land in the way he would like. Of course, when you're telling a story, you have a narrative that you're you're attaching things to. So that narrative buys you some interest if it's set up right. If there's conflict in all the right places and yeah. it escalates, that adding the jokes to that, people are naturally interested in stories. We tell stories as because uh, we that's that's just what we do as as a society. Everything we talk about tends to be a story. Like you've had a bad day, you tell the story of that. Yeah. We, we tell things in chronological order. Rarely do we tell things backwards or out of order for no apparent reason it will be in order so people are drawn to that so it does buy you a little bit of favor but then of course if there's a beat in the story that is essential but you can't make it funny it becomes a fucking problem (laughs) and you can just agonize over it and i I find myself doing that quite a bit certain beats that i know that has to be there to make this work um but i'm not quite sure where the humor lies in it I see. And then yeah, those are the bits that take a lot of, of a lot of editing, but also tenacity is key. You have to keep plugging away, and if you quit too soon, you get you have to work at the outer limits of your capability. And doing that is working yeah. on those things that you're not quite sure like how to make that work.
0: It's quite a nice analogy energy that that sort of is on topic with that, and it's like there, there's a story of this um, this, this uh, son and and father fa- father and son who were digging for. A, a treasure chest, like a pot of gold. And they kept digging and they kept digging and kept digging and kept digging and they never got to it and they just kept digging and they fell short of it and they said, look, we're giving up. And another person comes along and just does the last couple more digs and they get that pot of gold. It's like stopping short of where you could get to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if you give up... And actually, this is going to really lead on quite well to speaking about sort of new comics and and people coming through and things like that because, you know, you... People like um people like a few comedians on the second I've just started out where if you think about it, like if they stopped now, just as they started doing the first couple of gigs then then there's so much potential that that they're losing that one um, because we're all very different, we're all very unique, and the, ma- the your character and who you are and your persona and everything is what's unique about you, if you can hone that delivery of what you want to talk about and what's there. Then, then that,
1: that that's as unique as it can ever get because you are mm. you are just you. And I feel it's very important. Shall so we talk about like because I can, if you want to put this in the vein of a new comic, I, I can tell you like what's happened with me when I started. I told you that it was about the guy returning condoms, the first yeah. bit. So that if you think about it, that's very similar to kind of the stuff I'm doing now. I saw something that interested me. It prompted a load of questions, and I wrote about it. And I had a few bits like that. Then my wife left. And it put me into quite a bleak place emotionally. But when I got back into stand-up, I had about six weeks off. And then I really needed just to, to get writing and do something. So I wrote about that. Because in that moment, that was what I was thinking about and what consumed me. And there was some humorous stuff that came along with it. So I wrote that. And ended up writing 15 minutes on that. Going back to the Met Lounge in Peterborough, performing it, it went brilliantly. I was really, really happy. And it got me back into comedy, feeling very good about my my ability to do things, some of the stuff from that then carried over into like a type five that I was doing. And I gained a reputation for being a very dark, offensive comic. Um, and it really just hinged on one joke, but there were, there were a few more that was in a similar tone. But the joke was, um, I've got two children, my eldest who's 10 and severely disabled and my youngest who's three and severely irritating. <laughs> she's so irritating she's the only child I know who's actually immune to paedophiles <laughs> Channel 4 wants to make a documentary about her and other children like her the unrapables they were going to call it argh so is that those three lines basically got me this reputation as this really dark comic who will say anything and go to really fucked up places people loved it I actually had a request at Relevant a few weeks ago after going on and doing the Morrissey stuff. Someone comes up and goes, are you the guy with the paedophile joke? So like, there's lots of guys with paedophile jokes. Yeah, but the one about your kid? It's like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and they actually paid me a tenner to go over to a table and do it, so I'm not going to turn that down. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so it's still in the bank, be, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'll still pull it out when I need to. Yeah. But um, I, I, So I had that, but then... That's not a euphemism, by the way. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> hey. uh, so I had a few other jokes like that... Um, and then I felt that that was what was expected of me. So that's what I should lean into. But as things got better in my life, like I'd met my girlfriend and stuff, that wasn't the person who I was anymore. I didn't have those feelings anymore. And writing that stuff was disingenuous. And I went and sought advice. I went down to London to have a meeting with, um, with someone who's a comedy director and paid about 100 quid just to sit and have a talk with him for a couple of hours. And it came across that, yeah, I, don't, I shouldn't be doing this because this isn't who I am anymore. And I need to go away and find out who I am again and write that. So I spent a period of time then sort of just looking on internet for articles and stuff that interested me and then writing about that. And again, there were some things that I borrowed. I was doing a lot of emceeing, so I always wanted to have new material every time I emceed, which fucking killed emceeing for me. Because just learning all that stuff with all the other things going on in my life and then trying to memorise them and go up and stumbling over my words, it was brutal. (laughs) But it taught me to write jokes to take a subject, to think of an angle and to keep going, to edit it, to put the funniest words at the end, the end, the words with the harshest syllables at the end um, to condense it down to make sure that the uh, clarity between the setup and the punchline was there, that there was a proper twist in the punchline, that it took you in a different direction than you were expecting it to and I very much like to do like you write a sentence that would kind of sound like a cliche in conversation and then you just change the last word to something completely different, so it would you're going to imply that you're going to say something positive, you say something negative. Or you imply you're going to say something negative, you say something positive. Normally do that about something that's horrendous. <laughs> so it really sort of taught me to hone in. But again, I wasn't finding the things that really inspired me to write. And I like—I don't like to talk about me when I'm up there. I, see. I like to talk about things that we can relate to, things that are funny, things that we can satirise, things that we can... Like mistakes that the people have made, like bad art. Bad art is brilliant. I love bad art. Like I, I'm the sort of person who pretends to listen to Limp Bizkit ironically. <laughs> um, like Andrew WK is awful. Yet I've spent two hours listening to him this morning. Like he's got an album that starts off with music. Three songs in, there's a self help track he just starts talking to you. No way. And it ends, like, it's talking about how, like, um, life can be very difficult and it puts all these obstacles in the way and the goal of life is to overcome these obstacles and to relish in the opportunity to test yourself against these obstacles. And he ends with the phrase, that is what partying is all about and goes into another fucking song. (laughs) I want to hear this. (laughs) It's nonsense. And then it happens, like, four times across the album. These deep-seated things and then he just brings it back to partying. (laughs) It's, bollocks and I love that
0: and yeah. that's the kind
1: of thing I look You're for and then massive inspires me of now.
0: contradiction
1: yeah it just the, just the fact that it's so fucking stupid and that he's done it in earnest and just pull it out there
0: um that's that so that's that element of like that is like narcissism like I'm so important that yeah. you need to hear what my message is and-
1: like the whole his whole thing is, is bizarre to me like the fact that he is clearly a construct yeah he came about um as a project to create this um this rock star that everyone can appreciate because it was around the time that Slipknot was huge and Marilyn Manson was huge and rock and metal were considered very dark alternative subjects for people who were suicidal and depressed and it the last time rock was huge was in the 80s when it was Motley Crue, Poison and it was all about partying. So it was a case of, what well, how do we bring the audience who have had that, the frat boy audience and the mainstream audience, back to this type of music, the people who don't want to talk about self-harm and, and children shooting up schools and things. So it was a construct. He went in. And then after about two albums, something happened on his website. Someone put a, a blog post basically saying that he was a fraud and that he owed all of his, um, all of his career to this Steve Mike, spelled S-T-E-E-V, mike yeah really weird so and no one knows who steve mike really is (laughs) we don't know if it's one person or a group of people or a management thing and then for about five years he wasn't able to perform he was able to perform as andrew wk which is his name but it's also a brand wow and he wasn't allowed to perform certain songs that were written by steve mike so he had to go and do like hip-hop collaborations and classical piano pieces and he became a motivational speaker and doing like spoken word shows until he's had this that's all settled and now he can write this album and because he's been doing motivational, he now puts that in his fucking albums. <laughs> it's so weird just to have this idea of a man who is a man and that is his name and that is what he does who can't be that because he's sold himself out so young and I want to do something about that but again I'm not quite sure how to deliver that. The concept is so bizarre and that's the sort of stuff that inspires me but I can only... I've kind of learned that if I not if I can't talk about these things passionately and excitedly, I shouldn't be writing comedy about it. And I think when you get into comedy, and this is kind of what I want to bring it around to, when you get into comedy, there's very much... You hear a lot of things and you see a lot of stuff and you want to emulate a lot of stuff. You like the, There's the people that you like and you want to kind of do what they do because that's the stuff that makes you laugh. That's why you're drawn to them. But you are not that person. You have not been going anywhere near as long as those people. So you lack the skill. Um... So if you're trying to become a carbon copy of those people, you are going to fail. You can learn a lot by list by watching their stuff, listening to it, writing it down, or getting manuscripts of it. Um, learning about comic techniques and drug writing techniques in various books and things. If you just type in drug writing books, loads come up on Amazon. Um, there's one which uh, I think it's like... I can't even remember what it's fucking called. Um... It's by Sally Someone. That's really good. Like I said, the late-night TV writing one. If, really if I find it afterwards, I'll pop it in the yes. show notes. Yeah, um, do that. I, I can tell you later you can put it in the show notes. There's another one by Jean Perrett, which is like a comedy writing self-taught course and that comes with a workbook. That's really helpful. And if you can apply that to the people that you like and see what they're doing, and then when you're writing stuff, you'll go, oh, this technique would work here. But you have to find the things that you're really passionate about To write about. And if it's something that you're passionately angry about, like Louis C.K. was always talking about, follow your anger, follow the things that really make you angry. Lots of other comments. Uh, Bill Hicks was brilliant for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, But you have to be passionately angry about it. You can't think, this is what people expect me to be angry about. Yeah, sure. This is what people expect me to joke about. You have to have a feeling. If the only thing you're passionate about is, I don't know, orange pips, that is what you should write about.
0: But then that would be quite amusing, I think. Like, it's, it's something as novel
1: and simple as that. It, well, you know? look at Noel Fielding. He's built yeah. a career on just surrealism yeah. and talking about things that no one would be interested in outside of his sort of perspective of that. Like there's the word oblong. He's got a five-minute routine about the word oblong and getting grown-up men to <laughs> say the word oblong because you stop saying oblong when you become a grown-up. It's only a word you say as a child. Yeah. And it's just a so little true, thing that he's noticed. And again, he's built this huge routine about it. He's got another bit where he just talks about like whipping a mic cable. He had a really long mic cable one day and was just using it as a whip and a lasso and <laughs> stuff. Again, because that's what in that moment he felt was funny and silly and wanted to talk about. Like You have to have that. If you don't have that, first of all, you shouldn't be writing about that. You should go away and find the thing that you really feel is funny, is entertaining to you, that there is something humorous in it. And again, if you're just angry about it and you can't see the humour, again, maybe you shouldn't be talking about that.
0: And especially as a new comic, because the likelihood is, or at least some of the best advice out there is, it's really good to write new material all the time and, and try new material. However, when you first start out just getting used to sort of talking out loud, B2B, yeah. it's really important If you if you enjoy what you're talking about and you repeat it 30 times a week or a month or whatever... Yeah, you have to, you, you can't get bored if
1: someone can continue doing it genuinely. Like it's just it's just gonna it's gonna die. There is a piece of received wisdom that I strongly disagree with, but I understand the logic behind. Yeah, and that is that you should spend. And this mostly comes from the circuit cities, so like yeah. London, New York, Toronto, where you just have five minutes at a time, and then you have to get that five minutes down to progress to the ten minute spots. But then you only have five minutes of material, or possibly two fives of material that you can put together to make a ten. It's a very brutal cutthroat way of doing it. And what they say is just focus on your five minutes. Get your five minutes as tight as possible, down pat as possible, so that you're just reading off the jokes. It's bang, 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 bang. I disagree with that. Okay. But I, it's because I had the luxury of going to open mics that gave you 15 minutes. Of course, these were mixed open mics with musicians and stuff. So it's not a comedy crowd even. No. But that's, that's, that's about said. as good as going to a club that is just open micers. Because when you're in a crowd full of open micers, they ain't fucking listening. They're just thinking about their own shit. Yeah. So these musicians aren't listening. They're thinking about their own shit. But if you can get them to listen, that's a good skill. You're you're already developing. But I had the luxury of writing longer. And that's why Relevant, why I organise Relevant, I do 10-minute spots. I don't like giving five-minute spots. I think people should have 10 because it gives you room to talk to people. But to bring it back to the Street Fighter analogy there's two ways to play competitive street fighter and you start off playing what's considered a one player game that doesn't mean against the computer that means when you're playing an opponent the only thing you're thinking about is doing the things you've practiced outside of what the other person is doing that is the first first step to just getting competent so going up to the microphone and thinking about the things you've rehearsed is that it's not optimal but it is essential so you have to understand that the first bit you're going to do is you're going to go up and you're going to talk into the mic and you're just going to be recalling things. And you'll be getting the feedback from the laughter or lack thereof. But just getting comfortable, holding the mic, projecting your voice, stopping in the right places, doing all the things that you rehearse to the point where it's getting results is good. But when you get to that point, you then need to progress to the next bit, which to take the Street Fighter analogy is the two-player game, where the, your focus is what the other person is doing. and then adapting what you have and your toolkit that you've built up with your character to defeat the other person Now, in the context of comedy it's not defeat, it's to make laugh so you see who's responding and you comment on that and you bring them in and you be playful and it's the give and take but it's about what they're doing and sometimes you'll have an idea I'm going to do this set tonight you look around the room you see what other people are going for you're like that set won't work But I've got this other set that will work. Or none of my shit's going to work. I'm going to have to pull something out of my ass and have a bit of fun with these people. But you can't get to that point until you've spent that time just learning the basics. So when you start comedy and you see the people doing the crowd work and they're doing really, really well and you're like, I want to do that. You need to understand that you you might fuck it up. You might shit the bed and then you've got another four minutes of standing there. (laughs) We've all been there as well. We've all been there. You need to have the stuff, that you need to have your material ready. And very often it pays to do some material, try a bit of crowd work, or notice a response and just comment on the response and see how you can comment on it. And if you don't do it well, and you don't get a laugh, don't worry. Because that situation will arise again. And you will go home, you will be driving home, and you will go, motherfucker, that's what I should have said. (laughs) And you will get the opportunity to say it again if you do it enough. Yeah. And crowd work is a skill, but it's one of those weird skills where people haven't really broken down what you need to do. Yeah. But you'll learn it as you go along. But it also becomes a thing of comfort. And you also know, if that doesn't work, fuck it, I've got some good stuff coming up. But you can only get that if you've got that rehearsed down pat and you can't get flustered and you're not going, oh shit, what was I meant to say?
0: Yeah, and that comes with being comfortable on stage and speaking out loud and, yeah. and, and knowing that when there is that silence, that yeah. it's not the end of the world. Or when you have bond, it's not the end of the world. Mm. Because it is, the first time it happens to you, is an awful, awful feeling.
1: It is. Uh, and it, it never, that never gets better. That feeling will always be with you. But also, you need to lose in order to improve. You need to know where your shortcomings are to go away and work on them.
0: Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Like, I, my my first gig after like the long long break that I had was incredible, and that was a music over mic, like like you said. Um, and I did get the audience on on board, and it was it was really amazing. But that wasn't helpful at all for no. me because I went over, next time I did it in a comedy place, I I bombed completely, and I did it exactly the same way. But it, I was, went up there with that arrogance. But the whole, whole point of that set was not to be arrogant. And, and But I went up there with that confidence. And you can see straight through it. Yeah, away. confidence
1: isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you need to be able to back it up. Yeah. Um, and having a run of gigs that get really good. And I've, I've had enough now where I know that every time I have a run of gigs that are going good that's just one gig closer to the one that's not going to don't get cocky (laughs) because it's going to happen I generally find the more humble I can be the longer I can keep that streak going (laughs) but inevitably down in your head all the time inevitably I'll overestimate myself I'll go up I'll I'll misjudge the situation people won't quite be on side of me I've got the material they'll be the laughs the laughs in the places that I know are tight and will work and even if they don't I know that they do so that takes the sting out of it a bit. Yeah. But I always kind of feel like, fuck, I know I knew going into that that I was that this is what was gonna happen. I shouldn't have done it. And you still did it, yeah. And I still did it. But again, it also there are times where you go, Right, I'm gonna try it and you go, Oh fuck. That has probably only ever worked because I've done it in this way and I changed it today, I was cocky and it the joke only works if you do it in this particular delivery style. Well, I know that now, and I wouldn't have known that if I didn't fail. Yes. And it didn't make me think about what I was doing. Because if it goes well, what what is there to criticise? When it doesn't, it reframes it. And Again, you have to lose, and you have to work at the edges of your ability in order to grow. But working at the edges of your ability and losing all the time... Probably means you shouldn't be a comedian, actually.
0: <laughs> um, Fatalist. <You> know, but <laughs> for the listener, I have to say this: like before, before I um, did this, um, you know, arranged to meet up with Dan to do this this thing. I said I'm going to get you on the podcast, and I know you're pretty much going to finish with, um, just you know, like I, I pretty much know you're going to put off all new comedians from doing comedy well, ever.
1: <laughs> let's let's just say, like if you're if you're doing it, you you must have a reason to be doing it. Yes, you must, either, you must be able to make people laugh outside of it or at least make yourself laugh. You must have an interest for a reason. There are people who are capable of misjudging themselves quite severely, but those are, f- fortunately, in the minority. Most people who get into it, <laughs> in the will, same way most people on who get then. into music, at least enjoy listening to one musician.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: and they're able to play one song to a standard. It's a starting point. You need to build on it. But what I was about to say is, working on the edges of your capability and failing is anxiety-inducing yes i see and it can seriously make yourself doubt yourself and it can make you drive home and think why the fuck am i doing this why did i come out tonight when i could have stayed at home and just filled tissue after tissue with cum and it would have been great (laughs) yeah but i knew that was coming but uh, (laughs) hey there we go but the reason you're doing it is because it's fun Comedy should always be fun. That's the point of it. Of course, like dead dad shows don't necessarily have to be that. but they're making the topic of dead dad fun
0: yes, and palatable
1: for people. Um, it, sh- it should always be enjoyable at its core. And sometimes to make it enjoyable, you have to push yourself and go into some areas where you're uncomfortable and come back and, and learn new things. Yeah. Um, but again that brings again to bring about Street Fighter, the reason you play that game is because it's a fucking game. It's fun. And people yes. can get upset about a game. Yes. And angry about a game. Why is it It has no bearing on your life. It doesn't at all. have any bearing yeah. on your life. Like or or and you can take that into sports. If you're playing football and you're getting so fucking angry every week that the ref has made a certain decision <laughs> or that your teammates aren't scoring a goal, why are you playing? Yeah, I, I agree. You, you yeah. can have fun. You should just go there to enjoy yourself. And if you're enjoying yourself, you're more likely to get something out of it. And yeah, if shit goes wrong, you'll go away and practice it. But you'll practice it with the intention of having fun. And, yeah. And so many new comedians, again, I feel like you can get disenfranchised. You can go to a gig and the audience can be completely oblivious to fact comedy was even on that night. And it is brutal. No one wants to hear what you're saying. You get heckled. You, you can't come back to it very well because you're, you're thrown and you're not, in the, you're not in the right frame of mind um those nights aren't fun but you need to find the ones that are and go to them
0: yes and the thing is though um just to briefly touch on that when when you do get a night like that where it doesn't work for anyone and it's an awful thing and you're getting nothing out of it at all and yeah it, is awful, it didn't
1: work for anyone that ain't yeah, your fault
0: that's fine but i think going through those those nights is actually really like fundamental in growth because even uh, one because it gives you confidence that it wasn't just you mm-hmm. but two if that's the worst it's going to get
1: yeah, objectively, that's... if that's the worst, it's going to get objectively. Like, very few people are going to be in the situation that Jim Jeffries was in, where someone got up on stage and punched him in the face. <laughs> yeah. And even then, it was one guy punching him in the face one time. Yeah, didn't dislodge a tooth or <laughs> anything. He was all right. Yeah, like those things are so 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 rare. Like most of the time, it's fine. Yeah, it is fine. But you need it needs to be fun.
0: Yeah, that's the that's the main point. And I think I'm gonna I'm gonna we're sort of getting towards the end of our time now but i I, i'm going to finish this off in a in a very sort of kind of typical comedy way and call back (laughs) right to really early on in the conversation where when you first started wanting to do comedy the reason why you didn't start was because there wasn't the opportunities around you or or in your close-knit community where you could go and perform so you you're a part of like and real nice collective in Cambridge where I do have comedy nights that are great for new material um, people to try new material or new acts and things like that so tell us a bit about the like the nights you're running and, and things that you've got coming up well out.
1: at the moment I only run in the one night I used to run three it just got too much um, one of the venues was uh, non-communicative uh, although they paid the best they just didn't want to put the work in themselves so I dropped that and then endurance I dropped like I said just out of financial necessity but I may re- bringing that back so the only one I'm doing at the moment is uh, the Relevant Records Comedy Night which is the second Friday of every month um, and that's become a really lovely venue uh, it's amazing the open so... spots are 10 minutes like, it's not the perfect venue for comedy because it's too bright food is served throughout um, there's this weird alley that runs down the middle of the table so it's not all gathered in front of you like your typical comedy audience but for some reason comedy works in that room Every time, despite the toilet being Ooh, to the right every hand time side. <laughs> there, there are times it doesn't. But <laughs> those are unfortunately few and few and far between. Yeah. Um, it's it's developed into a really nice, pleasant place, and I give everyone ten minutes. Some acts I will do five, but that's just because I've seen them really struggling, and I don't think I think ten would actually be detrimental to them. Um, and it tends to be after a few five-minute spots, I'll give them a ten because yes, they they've got to the point where they've they've managed to get those five and they could they've got a few more bits they want to try and they should be allowed they should be allowed to try. That, that, that's more of a protective thing than anything it, think, it is know. yeah it's rarely do i do it to protect my own sort of like reputation it's generally to i mean again there are some acts who i will take a bit of a sort oh, of fuck <laughs> this person's here um but again i've there are some people who i've felt that about and then have actually gone on to really come into their own um but it's it's normally to protect the act If it's five minutes, it's just because they're so new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten minutes would be would be damaging to them. But most people, by the time they, they hear about relevance or a position where they can do ten anyway. Um. So yeah, I do that. I I try that, and then we got the the fringe. But the fringe is by application. Yes. By, yeah. by necessity, we got forty spots, and we had like one hundred and twenty applications last wow. year. Wow. Um. But yeah, if you want, if anyone does want a spot there's the relevant record comedy night page it's just called the relevant record comedy night um you can message that there's there's first laughs which i know is going through a transition at the moment but we're doing everything we can to to make sure that that maintains and of course there's there's your night there's uh, ben's night there's there's a lot of entry level open mic stuff yeah um and norwich is blowing up at the minute as well there's a lot going on in norwich that if uh, if it if it holds um means that there's going to be two comedy scenes quite close to one another that will have quite a vibrant scene, so if you're willing to do the travel. um, So getting into the Cambridge Comedy Connection Forum, if you're interested in spots, is is vital. So there's, there's a lot of good stuff, but you have to get out there. You have to put your name down. And you have to be willing to fail and be comfortable with that. That's
0: true. But please do, like, if you do join, like, the comedy collectives, and I will put the link in the, in the episode notes for that, um, please do send us any of us messages um, and ask for advice if you're just starting out. Because, uh, like, one of the things that I found in sort of the, like, because I, I just abstained for many years from, from comedy and coming back into it, you know, not knowing anyone in the, the sort of the local kind of comedy world... It was
1: really helpful, just to have, just just that just that sheer sort of selflessness that everyone seems to have. Yeah, it can seem comedy can seem from the outside like a closed book. Yeah, like there it's like a lockbox of, of stuff, and you don't know how to get in. The truth is, you get in by turning up at a comedy night. It's as yeah. simple as that. You turn up at a comedy night and you go and speak to the action, you go, How do I do this? And they will tell you. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. Um, and, and they will did, give did you more advice. Chris, Chris yeah. Norm Walker. <laughs> yeah. And if the comedian you speak to doesn't tell you, it's because that comedian is an asshole. <laughs> and go yeah. and speak to one of the others on the night because they will. And, and and if they all tell you that they're not interested, it's because you're the asshole who's <laughs> been heckling <laughs> them that
0: night. Right, a process of, of elimination. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> But most are very, very helpful. And also, becoming good at comedy, the idea that you're born good at comedy is bollocks. It cause is. Because babies yeah. are not funny. <laughs> I've had two of them. <laughs> um, and I've met loads. They're not that funny. Like, it's, it's a skill that you learn as you grow up. And it's a skill that you can learn. Because doing comedy on stage is different to being funny with your mates. People so like to different. say if you're funny with your mates, apply what you're doing there with them. But you don't necessarily know what you're doing with that. And a lot of converse, a lot of laughter in conversation—it's been studied. Most laughter is agreeing with people in context. It's not actually a because something funny has been said. It's polite laughter. It's encouraging laughter. It's just ha ha. I'm glad I'm here together with you.
0: Yeah. I it's see. not
1: because something legitimately funny has been said that could be taken onto stage and would look like a well-crafted joke you need to learn craft but again speaking to people they will point you in the direction of all the resources yeah because they are out there and they are affordable and they are understandable and learning to do the stuff is attainable if you put the work in and you're willing to fail you have to take your ego out of it and be willing to fail
0: yeah yeah great are there any any other sort of messages you want
1: to leave before we um no, because I think <laughs> yeah, any, anything beyond that, I will start to ruin people's expectations.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, this has been an amazing episode, Dan, so thank you so much for joining I'm, me. I'm glad you enjoyed it. No one else will, but uh, that's, I that's did. <laughs> Cheers, mate. So that was Dan Farmer. What an awesome guy. Do you know what? It is safe to say that he is one of the nicest people I think I've ever met in and out of comedy. But during the episode, Dan spoke about a couple of great books that he recommends to any comedians or comedy writers. And I just wanted to let you know what they were. The Serious Guide to Joke Writing by Sadie Holloway. Comedy Writing for Late Night TV by Joe Toplin and comedy writing self-taught by Gene Perrett. All of the links to their websites are in the show notes. So if you do go on to buy one of those books, then why not mention the podcast? It does really help with us, and, you know, it's all about helping each other. But before you do that, don't forget, Dan runs an amazing new act, new material night at Relevant Records on Mill Road, Cambridge, which is the second Friday every month. Like the page on Facebook, and if you are an act who wants to perform, send him a message. All the details of how you can like that page are in the show notes. And anything else discussed that is linkable, followable, likeable, listable and not limited to findable can be found in the show notes. And there are still tickets available for our live recording of the Comedians Outlook on Monday the 30th of September at the Boathouse in Cambridge. My special guest for this episode is the awesome Rich Wilson, who is highly rated by so many names, including the huge names of Frank Skinner, Rob Beckett, Sarah Milliken, and so many more. He is one of the best comedians in the country right now and also hosts the amazing podcast Insane in the Men Brain. Tickets are only £7 and there's going to be live stand-up comedy from myself, Mel Byron and Rich Wilson and then an exclusive interview for the podcast. So run over to thelucantonycomedy.co.uk forward slash TCO live for ticket information. And don't forget you can become a patron of the show and get exclusive content from the interviews and it also gives you a discount to these live shows. And wherever you listen to the podcast on your favourite podcast app, please rate, review and rate it highly and share it with your friends. It really does help. But that's it from me. Have a great week and I'll speak to you soon. Hello, I'm Luke Anthony. Do you love hearing about The Stars, careers, lives and mental health? Well, Meet The Stars It's a brand new podcast all about that. Join me every week from Wednesday the 2nd of December for an excellent conversation with a different star each episode. Simply go over to members.starevents.online to become a member, which gives you exclusive access to every episode and so many other brilliant features just for you. See you there.